0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Barron. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers, and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking. What's Working and New Ideas in Sustainability, Resilience and Regeneration. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today... The world needs a Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally and, importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Nita Crawford to the Sustainability Agenda. Nita is an American political scientist. She's Montague Burton Chair in International Relations at the University of Oxford. Crawford co-founded Costs of War Project with anthropologist Catherine Lutz in 2010 and currently serves as a project co-director. Her latest book is The Pentagon, Climate Change and War. So thank you very much, Nita, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So uh it took a little bit of uh chewing and froing to get this set up, but uh, I do appreciate uh your, your your making time available to talk to me today. Now uh before we enter the, into the conversation about your book and, and indeed your your recent research, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and what uh yeah and and, and, and your background, please, Nita.
1: So I'm the Montague-Burton Professor of International Relations at Oxford, and I'm also a fellow, a senior fellow with Balliol College. Prior to that, I was at Boston University, where I was the chair of the Department of Political Science. I have a PhD in political science from MIT, and uh, I've been, for the last 12 years, the co-director of the Costs of War Project.
0: Great. Right. And um, also, I I like to try and just get a little bit of a feeling of the lay of the land, as it were, before we start. This is we we talk about environmental issues and uh, climate issues and biodiversity and so forth. But I'm just wondering what in particular is on your mind. We're facing all kinds of crises at the moment, escalating on on numerous fronts. But are there one or two things that particularly uh, you're focused on that, that 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 worry you the most?
1: I think there is this assumption that we're entering a period that is either approaching the end of the, the uh, time for action, or that it's too late to affect emissions in a way that will keep temperatures below 1.5 or even 2 degrees C. And I think we still have time to act, and that's why I keep working.
0: Right, right, and th- th- those those views that uh, as you say are, are are growing um to what extent do you think they're they're genuine uh and and uh to what extent do you think uh like many uh arguments and points of view when it comes to climate, that they are uh instrumental, shall we say?
1: well i I'm not sure what people believe, but I read and hear what they say. And then what follows from that, the interest that they express after that. And I think for some people, um, you know, the sense that the worst impacts of climate change are a fait accompli is, um, in a sense, a a relief because they don't have to act. Um, They'll just protect themselves. They can put up walls or jump in a lifeboat. Um, And for others, it's, uh, a license to do the most extreme things like solar geoengineering, even though the risks of those actions are really high. And um, for many of us, I think uh, the sense that we're approaching the limits or that we've gone past is just an impetus to put our shoulders to the wheel and keep working. So I'm, I'm not sure about what's genuine or not genuine, but I think that there are definitely different responses to the larger sense that uh, time is running out or has run out.
0: Yeah, well, I I think that there certainly was a a time where uh, many, uh, well, you might call extreme views or, or right wing or, or just, just, our views that the climate wasn't real, for example, uh, and, and still, still are around, but it seems that uh, in many cases, groups that had that view now are are all on board with, you know, climate is, you know, we, we're seeing that climate change and the, these are challenging times in a certain respect. And they are then using this for their own agenda. So it's not like it's uh, just uh, progressive uh, uh, environmentalists and so forth that care about this. You, you, you start to see, you know, uh, right-wing groups and so forth saying, yes, of course, climate's important. Therefore, we need uh, energy independence. Therefore, we need to uh, stop migration. Therefore, at And and they use it for their own agenda as well.
1: Yes, I think that's true. I think we all use whatever arguments suit us um, and evidence suit us. I I don't see that as surprising. I think what's really astounding is the alacrity with which they've switched their tune. Um, But uh, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised by that because of the high utility. I mean, I think that what's really worrisome to me is the sense of emergency that then licenses extreme policies and attitudes. Yes. And yes, we're in uh, a climate emergency, but I, I think that we don't have to sort of put up the walls or throw aerosols into the atmosphere there are things we can do right now which will make a meaningful difference and are not uh, going to hurt people uh as much as uh they, they might, these actions might. So I'm I I think we're all in our amygdalas, we're all in the fear center of our brain. I think we should be concerned, but um that doesn't mean that uh, you know, any climate migrant is a threat of war or that, um, you know, a transition to different kinds of uh, resources like lithium or other rare earth metals will lead to fighting over those resources. I think we have um, opportunities here for creating a a different kind of world. One, which deals with the realities and of the challenges posed by ongoing climate change, but that doesn't do so by being uh, either hoarding or aggressive.
0: Right, right. Uh, That's that's interesting. And, And what, if anything, gives rise to optimism, Nita, for you?
1: Oh, I think three things. First of all, the rapidity with which the transition to alternative sources of electrical energy is occurring. And, you know, within that, various technologies have really taken off, including advances in the efficiency of solar panels, which are astounding. So the the rapidity of the transition, the technol- technology sort of um, keeping pace and leading. And then I think the um, local activists are very exciting to me because they're not waiting in some instances for governments to act. In cities and in states, um, provinces, people are changing policies which have been harmful to the environment and moving to policies which at least halt the harm and in some cases repair. So I think of places like where uh, my daughter lives in Medford, Massachusetts, where there's a tree committee that is looking at and and acting on the loss of tree cover in Medford. And part of the reason why tree cover has been lost is the methane that's leaked by natural gas, which harms the roots of the trees. But this is uh, also a consequence of uh, not planting trees in certain areas, for many years. So they're interested in planting trees and also dealing with the methane that's released by natural gas. Right. Of course, we're all told that methane is a great thing because it's not coal, but methane has its risks and uh, we need to, to think about other ways of providing energy. So the tree committee works on planting trees, on um, helping neighborhoods with where there's Loss of tree cover, and this is really exciting. And that's just one place, and it's happening all over Massachusetts, and it's happening in many communities in, like, in uh, the U.S.
0: Great, great. Now, your your latest book, um, "The Pentagon, Climate Change, and War," um, follows on from uh, an extensive uh, period of research, writing, and thinking about uh, wars and the military. In various different ways, uh, amongst other things. Um, now, what what uh, motivated you to 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 focus on uh, this this uh, to write this particular book? Because I, I guess some of the themes have been in in your, your 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 earlier writings and so forth. I mean, on the face of it, you'd imagine <clears throat> that the Pentagon has pretty good data and information <laughs> about. Their, their emissions and that kind of thing, their environmental impact and so forth. So getting that kind of data, compiling that kind of data, one would imagine would be pretty straightforward. Was that the case?
1: No, I I wanted to, uh, first of all, do an estimate or find just a basic number for U.S. military emissions in one or more years and then get a sense of the trends in those emissions. And I couldn't find that data Easily. Uh, there is some data on the Department of Energy website, which I was able to use, which has um, basic Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions reporting. And, the, and for a while they had biogenic emissions and um, Scope 3 emissions as well. Um, so that that is there, but uh, I needed to actually use the raw data from the Department of Energy for the Department of Defense. Energy use to calculate DOD emissions from 1975 to the present, which is the furthest back I could go was 1975. And I wanted the long-term view for a couple of reasons. One, in the late 1990s, when the United States was um part of the negotiations for the Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, the DoD argued that any cuts in military. Activity, you know, or even having to report their military emissions could be harmful because it would lead to, um, you know, operational changes, which would be to the detriment of US power in the world. And what I found was that actually military emissions have declined more than what they were afraid of in the 1990s. And that uh, it hasn't harmed the U.S. capacity to make war. I mean, the U.S. capacity to make war is, um, of course, not in a vacuum. Other powers are, are important. Um, you can't win every war um, necessarily. But um, what what I wanted to do was sort of, um, you know, put a number around it that wasn't there before so that we could evaluate whether or not it harmed U.S. military capacity to even just count military emissions and then maybe even reduce them. So I found that they had fallen from their peak in the 1970s and and the 1991 peak. Another reason why I wanted to understand this and why the book goes back to the 19th century was that I wanted to have a sense of how is it that military emissions are a part of the larger emissions profile of a country. In other words, What is it about war and uh, military industry and mobilization uh, that relates to the rest of a country's industrial profile and its um, greenhouse gas emissions? And what I found was that um, by going back to the 19th century and uh, understanding the ways that war and military industrialization affected the larger industrialization of the United States, that that wars tended to drive up energy use, not just in the military sector, but across the industrial sectors of a society. And this is in part because of uh, just advances that then become, uh, I mean, military advances that become commercial advances, like Developing aircraft for the military led to support of the commercial aircraft industry by the United States government when they gave surplus aircraft away after World War I and then again after World War II. So, this essentially subsidized the commercial aircraft industry. And then uh, there were other innovations, for instance, moving away from natural rubber in the wars to synthetic petroleum based rubber increased the demand for petroleum which then increased the interest in protecting access to petroleum so the increased use of fossil fuels not just for burning uh, but for materials led to the desire to protect it which is driven uh, protect access to it which has driven US foreign policy for decades. And um, it, it, for me, really important to understand these things, because there's a sense, uh, first of all, that the um, all of this was inevitable and it had to unfold in this way, when actually, when you look at it historically, there were choices that were made in the 19th and the 20th centuries to develop in certain ways, and um, they need not have been those choices. It could have been other things. Um, Another thing that I'm interested in understanding is the relationship between uh, emissions and conflict. So there's a sort of taken-for-granted idea now that climate change will lead to conflict. And this conflict um, will come in the form of climate refugees or uh, fighting over resources such as scarce water or land to grow food and um this link you know is is basically understood as one way climate change will lead to war and what i've shown in this book is that war and military industrialization have in part caused climate change and that's the the sort of flip that i'm trying to make in people's mind it's it's not that it's a one way relationship but that military emissions, which are a significant part of U.S. emissions and global emissions and the emissions from war, actually have caused part of the climate problem. And we can reduce those.
0: Right. To what is the scale of the uh, military emissions today? How would you dimensionalize the scale of U.S. military emissions currently?
1: sure so the United States military emissions at their peak in 1991 were 100 million metric tons in that year um those emissions you know from 1975 to the present fluctuate depending on what's going on in the world and what the U.S military is doing in the world so um in the immediate uh post-Vietnam period, they were also very high. They were about 109 million metric tons, I think, in 1975 or 1976. And as the United States demobilized following the withdrawal from Vietnam, its military emissions declined a little bit. Then they increased during the Cold War mobilization. And we think about nuclear weapons, nuclear um, production increasing and the modernization and deployment of new nuclear weapons in the 1980s but there was also conventional force mobilization and exercises that occurred as part of the Cold War confrontation then with the end of the Cold War that is um with conventional arms control and with nuclear arms control and uh, the decreasing number of bases, that, um, that the United States had abroad going from 2000 um, or so military bases in the world to now in the uh, late 1990s, they had gone down to about a thousand military bases with base realignment and closure. And um, there were fewer operations, military emissions declined. And then in the 2000 With the the, uh, eruption of the war in Afghanistan in 2001 and the optional war in Iraq in 2003, military emissions increased again. So there was, in other words, in the 1990s, essentially a green dividend. We talk about a peace dividend with the end of the Cold War, but there was an emissions dividend with the end of the Cold War.
0: Just to dimensionalize the actual scale, I guess there's different ways of framing it. but on, on the face of it uh, for example, you can say that the U.S military uh, emissions are greater than those of Denmark. So can you give us some measures like that that because you, you talked about them going up and going going down, declining all yeah. sudden good news. but the scale is still momentous.
1: All right. So the way to think about U.S. military emissions, just the DOD's emissions, is to realize that the Department of Defense is the United States' single largest energy user, single largest petroleum user. It is also uh, obviously then the United States government's single largest energy user. So the, the DOD... Um, is also, you know, has the world's largest office building, it has uh, a lot of real estate in the United States, and so on. So it's big. That's why it uses all of this energy. And it uses it um, to the extent that, let's say in in, uh, 2021, the United States emissions were 51 million metric tons. So at 51 million metric tons, yes, indeed, For that year, U.S. military emissions exceeded the emissions of many countries in the world, the poorest countries in the world, add them up. It exceeded those emissions. And it was larger than the emissions of sort of larger countries that you might think about, like Portugal or Denmark or Morocco. So it is a significant emitter. Now, in terms of its scale in the U.S. economy, which is, of course, enormous, it's the second largest economy in the world, after China, the uh, emissions of the United States military are about 1% or 1.5% of total U.S. emissions. And when you add military industry to that, I estimate it's about 3% of total U.S. emissions, which uh, the military industrial emissions are significant in and of themselves. What are they? So... Um, military industries are companies like Boeing or Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman. Those are the top three in the US. And they make weapons and weapons platforms like aircraft and ships and so on for the United States. And then they also export their weapons to the rest of the world. So or at least to the countries that can pay for them or the United States um allows them to be exported to. So those companies some of them have um like Boeing a large commercial aspect to it so they Boeing makes aircraft for um civilian use that is exported all over the world and bought in the United States. Lockheed Martin is largely uh focused on military as, as is Northrop Grumman. So um, these companies uh, emit greenhouse gases like every other industrial activity, but they happen to be more greenhouse gas intensive than many civilian industries. And that's because the requirements for these weapons and weapons platforms are very specialized and it's a very capital intensive process. And um, uh, it's this high tech requires a lot of energy. So recently... Um, these large companies have been decreasing their emissions by either, you know, buying offsets so they're they're claiming reductions in emissions, or um, by actually uh, doing efficiencies um, and switching fuels. Let's say away from coal to uh, some other fuel like natural gas or geothermal, whatever. And um, the scale of their emissions when you when I estimate um, the top 14 or so U.S. military industrial companies, it's about the same as the U.S. military's emissions in any one year. So that's scope one and scope two. And um, so then you could think of, um, the U.S. military industrial emissions as a significant emitter all by itself, if if one were to focus on that. Now, if one were to try to think about that in the global context, of course, um, if you, let's say, compare to China, where we don't have transparency, or to Russia, again, where we don't have transparency, the U.S. is probably a larger emitter, given the kinds of forces it has. Those other countries, uh, many other countries in the world are, are more people intensive.
0: But they're a fraction of the scale of of uh, just the, the, the American military spending. What is it that the, the America American government spends on arms compared to what is it the next six, seven, eight countries?
1: Well, you, you're asking me about total military spending in any one year. It's now around $800 billion. And um, this is more than the United States uh, spends more than China and Russia combined, Uh, probably twice that. Um, I don't have those numbers right in front of me, so I can't answer you. But basically, um, U.S. military spending is, uh, uh, I don't know, I can look it up.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, the the figures that you you see around of 800 billion and so forth, but it's also legendarily uh, complex to actually get figures, to actually understand where the the money's been spent, to actually work out where the money's gone. Um, Trillions seem to be missing.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say that. I I wouldn't say trillions are missing. Um, I'd never say that. I mean, the the Pentagon...
0: Unaccounted. Is that a better word? Unaccounted.
1: Let me just say something about U.S. military spending. Um, It goes up whether or not the U.S. is at war. It seems to do that. Yeah. It seems to be unmoored to um, threats. Uh, Military spending is... Because the United States' GDP is huge... Um, it's not as high in terms of GDP as other countries, but it is certainly the largest amount of military spending in the world. That's for sure. but I you know as as far as trillions missing, I can't say that. I don't know that
0: well, i've seen I've seen headlines. here's uh, so from Bloomberg government, the Pentagon made thirty trillion in accounting adjustments last year alone. Thirty trillion. I mean, what does it mean? Accounting adjustments. I mean, the scale of these figures are extraordinary, and you know, um, you say that there isn't a question of trillions unaccountable. Um, I, I,
1: I okay, but let's just fergal. Let me let me just just hold on a minute here. The Pentagon had not done an audit ever. And so recently, there have been audits of the Pentagon. So they're they're catching up. You're talking about decades of uh, money here.
0: But how, that, right? how does that so, change fundamentally the question of you know governance of understanding the figures of, mm. of actually accounting for these figures? I suppose that's the question, which I suppose is that the underlies an idea about. You know how one could possibly start to think about changing the uh, the the behavior, shall we say, of the military? Its fossil fuel intensity, at least, thinking about those kind of things. If already at very a very basic level, the you know we, you talked about the challenges getting data, good data on on the the emissions uh, itself, but also on the actual spending.
1: Well, that's a, a much more complex problem. I mean, you know, there's there are two things that drive military spending. Um, and, and the third, which is kind of weird, which we'll talk about last. But the first thing is um, the military uh, is supposed to match its request for spending to a plan that's given to it by the president in any one year. And um, that should be matched to the U.S. interests. So the United States' interests are grand. They're large. It wants to control outcomes in the world. Um, Most countries don't have such high ambitions to be dominant and preeminent. And those are the words that they they use in their own documents, right? So um, that's one thing that drives U.S. military spending. The other thing that drives U.S. military spending is what they spent in the past. And they believe that they should never go down, and things, that, so the the spending actually tends to go up whether or not the U.S. is at war, and it's exceptional for Congress to appropriate less money than the than the previous year. In fact, Congress often appropriates more money than the military asks for. The third thing, which is kind of weird, is um, this uh, the way that patriotism and Congress is part of this as well. Patriotism plays into it or the sense that um uh, you're you're unpatriotic if you question US military spending or want it to be more efficient or or you're you're supposedly taking money away from the troops who are going to then walk around without body armor and so on so there's a fear of questioning US military spending i would say in the um you know among the, the democrats especially but certainly among republicans who believe that Um, They have to rally around the flag. They have to salute. And that um, having, you know, certain levels of military spending is a sign of their patriotism and support. So those are the things that I think uh, affect U.S. military spending. It doesn't tend to go down. It should.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I suppose the fundamental question is who who cares within the uh who cares within the US establishment within the uh Biden administration and indeed within the military in general about the emissions of of the military i'm just wondering that in in general because there seems to have been even in the days of uh well Trump's uh manic uh denial of climate at the same time the American military was publishing its research and its analysis which uh, was was dark about the the implications of of, of climate change it, it it wasn't it it wasn't trying to understate it in general to make general comments that it, it seemed to be treating it as a, as a serious threat and and the implications of it so on the one hand you have that coming out uh, and, and yet at the same time as you say there, there there's such a significant uh source of emissions
1: mm-hmm Right. So as you say, certainly in the Trump administration, it seemed like there was a bit of multiple personality going on. It, on the one hand, the national intelligence community and the Department of Defense were saying uh, climate change is occurring. Uh, it's affecting our operations already, and it will affect our basing and operations in the future. And we need to react um, you know, to that by having greater resilience. So they were preparing for a climate change altered world and recognizing how climate change had already altered the world. And then of course there was the uh, excision of the words climate change from things that came out of the white house. So yes, it was this uh, multiple personality moment. And what happened with the Biden administration is that there has been uh, a coherence, that's come into the policy in the sense that the administration clearly recognizes that climate change is a, ch- a challenge for the military uh, and indeed for the entire U.S. government. They have a whole of government approach. The military in 2022 for the first time released documents which described not only that they were going to react to climate change, but that they had to quote, do their own, do their part to reduce admissions I'm sorry, reduce emissions. And the uh, military, each service came out with a plan to reduce their emissions or to get to net zero by certain benchmarks. So this is a pretty important change that's occurred in the Biden administration under Defense Secretary Austin. And it it's across the board and the services. And that that um I think we wouldn't have expected to have seen if Trump had been re-elected.
0: That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I was wondering how how much weight we should put on the rhetoric and what what they're saying. And maybe there's this evidence uh, that this is already taking place. But as you say there, it's it it you can easily see how arguments could be made that becoming uh you know reducing carbon would reduce the impact re- reduce the efficiency of the military and arguments like that which, which would which would be very seductive i imagine
1: well so they, those arguments have um been made since the 1990s, right? So the people on the right have said, you know, we can't be worried about reducing emissions, we have to maintain military preeminence in the world. And if you're focused on emissions, you'll be decreasing efficiency and so on. So that that has been on the table. And on the other hand, um, the argument has been, It actually doesn't hurt to increase efficiency. It saves lives to increase efficiencies, let's say, in a tank, so that if somebody's driving around a tank that gets um, very low mileage and they're trapped in a city because they can't get refueled, they're vulnerable to attack. Um, The military's been concerned about um, vulnerable supply lines. So they wanted to, in the 2000s, decrease fuel use in Afghanistan and Iraq so that they wouldn't have to transport as much fuel. So they've been interested in efficiencies for efficiency's sake and for saving lives for decades. And um, this has led to marginal decreases in the use of fossil fuels in war zones and um, you know, in some cases on bases and they've switched fuels and so on. But um, I would say that the rhetoric is far outpacing the actions in this sense. So what I was saying is that the um, recent commitment by the armed services to reduce their emissions is uh, fine rhetorically, and they have made some emissions reductions they have some plans that will be effective to reduce their emissions but the rhetoric is outpacing the actual outcome so i'll give you an example the army said that they would have a 50 percent emissions cut by 2030 from a fiscal year 2005 baseline and that they would be net zero by 2050 So when they tell you this in their climate strategy, they don't actually tell you what their emissions were in 2005, right? So it's hard to judge how close they are to those targets. And my research shows that they've actually made a lot of progress in in their cuts. Now, 2005 was a year of high activity in Afghanistan and Iraq, so it was a peak fossil fuel use year. So if if you really wanted to talk about emissions reduction and you'd want a baseline that was from a non-war year and um, then uh, actually give the baseline emissions number so that people could judge how close you were. The same thing with the Navy. They've said they're going to have department-wide emissions reductions of 65% by 2030 from a 2008 Baseline, but they don't give you the 2008 baseline.
0: What have they succeeded in doing? Do you know where they have reduced emissions? How have they done that?
1: Right. Well, the uh, emissions come in really two packages. One is the emissions from installations and bases, and that's about thirty percent of all DOD emissions. And the rest, the 70% remaining is operational, that is war or exercises or training or uh, movement overseas. And um, what's been reduced in important ways are the emissions from installations by, for example, shifting away from coal and diesel um, to power bases. And so installation emissions have reduced. So there have been some operational reductions, but that's where we need to really focus is on thinking about how to reduce the emissions from operations. And most of those emissions, the bulk of that is from aircraft. So there you have to think about efficiencies uh, in, with the aircraft themselves but also questioning whether or not the missions and the exercises are necessary. And that's what the military has not been doing as much. They haven't rethought the missions and the locations of its bases to fulfill those missions. Uh, And essentially that's the, the gold, right? If we're searching for something um, to make a real big impact, that's where we need to look. It's at operations and we lo- need to look at aircraft.
0: Right. That's interesting. But are, are, do you, in general, I mean, you seem, maybe this is not a, a, a fair fair assessment, but you seem quite understanding of the military, of, of the Pentagon in some sense, or it sounds a little bit like that. Um, and I'm just wondering are you optimistic that w- we will see changes, significant changes? It, it seems, you know, uh, in a context of 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 you know huge momentum towards increased militarization globally um it seems uh, that you know in, in terms of NATO spending commitments Germany coming in now with more and more countries stepping up to increase their arms now when I mean, this is in the U.S um but the U.S. is very influential in 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 terms of uh, driving a lot of change here in in and in, in, in the culture and, and attitudes to, to 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 military spending and and it also seems that the U.S. itself is not short of uh, countries that it's it's uh, troubled by. We've got the Russia and, and Ukraine situation, the, the a terrible war there, but also in China and. Uh, you know, and other countries too, increasingly. Right. It seems, I mean, what's your take there on, within the, the U.S. administration? It, it certainly doesn't seem to be heading in a peaceful direction.
1: Yeah, right. So on the whether or not I'm sympathetic to the U.S. military, what I'm trying to do in my work is describe how they got to be the way they are in terms of fossil fuel use. And then you have to take seriously what they think what they believe that they're doing and why. And so I, I'm taking that seriously. I'm uh, it, you know, to the extent that I'm using uh, what social scientists call a, a hermeneutic or interpretivist method, I have to be open to understanding them in their own terms. And that's right. what I am. Yeah. So um, I'm describing to you how, people think and the institutionalization of those beliefs and, and then those beliefs being be, having been institutionalized they become sticky or resilient to change. Yeah. And yeah. that's on the one hand, on the other hand, I'm very interested in a fundamental rethinking of these assumptions and a restructuring of those institutions, because I do not believe that the path that we've gone down is helpful for humanity. Just the opposite. okay? I I believe that much of what we're doing is counterproductive, which goes to your second point. Yes, the US military and the US foreign policy do drive other countries' foreign policies. To the extent that the United States has made a pivot or a swerve or is swiveling towards the Indo-Pacific, it's contributing to the uh, sense in China that they ought to increase their military forces and military spending. And I don't think that's productive. I don't believe that the economic issues that the United States has with China, for instance, the theft of intellectual property, demands a militarized response. I, I think that we have to demilitarize our the U.S. foreign policy and, in fact, global um, policies. I, I'm very much interested in that. But what you've asked me to do is uh, is explain to you what the extent of uh, these emissions are and how they got to be this way. And um, I think that the the best way to understand it is to to really get into the beliefs and the institutions and the operations. Now, am, am I optimistic that they can um, meet their commitments? Yes, they can do this. They can reduce. They can be net zero.
0: What's at stake for them if they don't? It's almost uh from from uh Dr Strangelove the idea of a you know carbon efficient bomb th- th- those kind of ideas I just wonder how it how it I can see the win wins the those situations where it, it it meets it it helps them as well in some way might reduce it to budget but budget really hasn't ever been an issue it seems in the American military um so that's just one w- w- one aspect um but I just wonder what's at stake if they they don't hit their targets. But they, sorry, bad metaphor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, the the goals in in terms of in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, becoming you know in, re- in reducing emissions. But they do other great things as far as well the you know the military is concerned as far as foreign policy is concerned.
1: Right. I think it's possible for the U.S. military to become greener. And in fact, what they say is they want, and I'm quoting here. More lethality per gallon. You know, that's what the Air Force says.
0: Well, are they talking about ten percent, twenty percent, five percent, seventy percent radical change, you know? Um, or or you're talking about at the margins. Because if they're increasing their spending, increasing their scale of their military activity, reducing it by five percent, ten percent, and so forth, presumably won't get you anywhere because on balance you'll be still on a rising trajectory.
1: Well, on balance, they're on a falling trajectory, and I think that's good. It's still enormous, right? Um, and it could be accelerated. So I think that what they're doing is making a different in terms of total emissions. And the question of whether U.S. foreign policy and military doctrine and U.S. military presence over the globe increases other countries' military forces and missions is something we need to take a look at because it's not just the united states as you've said all by itself it's in a, a complex ecology of other countries some of whom are allies and some of whom are adversaries some of who, whom are emulating the united states and some of whom are bandwagoning with us adversaries so it's very complex and i i would say that Uh, it's not just the emissions that we have to have our eyes on. It's the whole doctrine. It's the whole force structure. It's the policies. And it's the question of whether or not to live in a better world, we need to have such large military forces to the extent that um, those military forces could still do their mission and be smaller. That's great. Are the missions, the missions we want them to do, um, I don't know. We need to talk about that. What we don't do in the. US and in other places as far as I can see, is really question whether or not the the things that we've done in the past are serving us now in the context that we're in. And if they're not serving us, we need to rethink them, radically restructure. And that's that's where I'm at. I'm interested in us questioning the sort of last two hundred and thirty years, or 220 years of, you know, ever greater reliance on military force to accomplish foreign policy goals and think about uh, whether or not we can live another way and how to do so. And there's not a world in which there are no risks. There are risks in the status quo and there are are risks and change. The question is, which has the greater risks and which are the possible benefits? I, I think we've seen, we've been through this world uh, of, you know, status quo, um, arm and um, confrontation. I think we need to think about another way.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that, talking about, you know, uh, foreign policy goals and so forth. The I was fascinated to to come across this book, as it by Frank Kotsky, Harry S. Truman, and the War Scare of nineteen forty eight, and it seems this is a, a theme that you know that this the scare, the rhetoric that that's all that's necessary in some way to keep military spending going. You know that 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 that, 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 that at the time the U.S. military itself its own analysis of the risks were were not those that that truman put forward and you know the red scare and and the dangers of, of communism and and russian invasion and so forth but that was you know I mean, called a well propaganda rhetoric and so forth and this is a yeah. very powerful
1: right so what i think you're talking about Fergal, is uh a set of beliefs that in the early 20th century, people were very proud of. They were militarists. They believed that um, military force was good. It made people better people, um, you know, that war was a force that purified and ennobled, that it made economies more efficient. And that's how you determined who was going to be on top. It was kind of a uh, this militarist view was dominant more than 100 years ago. And the same beliefs are articulated in a little more sophisticated way. So we think and we're told that war can be cheap and that it can be efficient, it can be effective, it can be quick, you know, we'll come home before the leaves fall or whatever the season is, and that uh, the results will be final. And what we see over and over again is that War doesn't meet those aspirations or those beliefs. And then, you know, for a little while, we're sort of gun shy um, to to use a bad metaphor. We don't want to go to war. It's called war weariness or, um, you know, in the U.S. that was the Vietnam syndrome. We don't want to do that again. We don't want to experience that kind of uh, futility, but. Um, Those promises recur that, you know, at the beginning of the Iraq war, the US public was told, oh, it'll be $50 billion or maybe $300 billion. And that's it. And no, it's many times that what the actual budgetary costs were. Uh, We were told it was going to end in a few weeks or months. And it, of course, lasted for about, it's still ongoing, actually, it's about 20 years now we've been in it. And um, we're told that there'll be few civilian casualties, that that the um, risks of escalation would be low. And of course, there were hundreds of thousands of people who were killed and injured and millions displaced. So we always hear and everyone who wants us to go to war tells us that it's going to be all those things, quick, efficient, effective, um, you know, low in casualty on our side, and maybe we'll'll we'll not hurt civilians. and and that's what underpins the choice to go to war. But the belief that the threat of war is effective is also there. It's also part of this militarist belief system that is very deep in human culture. It's not unique to any country no. or time. No.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. When the military does, I suppose, various kinds of assessments, risk assessments on on particular military operations, do they have environmental risk analysis?
1: Not so much. What they want to do is affect the environment. So essentially, um, what the military does is try to use the environment in war, and all militaries try to control their environment. And one of the ways, for instance, the U.S. tried to control the environment in Vietnam was to burn down the jungles so that they could find uh, the people transporting weapons. Horrific, yeah. And um, isolate guerrillas from the civilians. And um, in the Civil War in the U.S., the, the military burnt forests in the South to uh, as punishment. And um, in Ukraine, um, the Russians have burned Ukrainian forests. So war has been, since biblical times, um, something that has affected the environment and militaries have tried to use. And I don't think that um, uh, environmental concerns ever trump or overwhelm the idea of military efficiency and effectiveness.
0: How has the response to your book been? Because this information hasn't been available before. Uh, the, the analysis, the detail, the research that went into it.
1: Oh, there have been a couple of reviews. Um, honestly, Fergal, I don't really read the reviews because I, I just don't want to know. I just <laughs> want to just keep doing my work. So I can't really answer you. I know that I'm told that there was a hostile review in foreign policy. Um, Again, I I try not to read them.
0: Yes, yes.
1: um, Because I just want to say what I want to say without fear of, um, you know, being too concerned.
0: Not good for your health. What's next for you?
1: I'm going to finish a book that I was working on before this one called To Make Heaven Weep, Civilians in the American Way of War, where I try to understand how it is that the U.S. military has used um, both uh, the idea that they should target civilians for coercion and the idea that they should win their hearts and minds. Alternatively, um, you know, alternating over this the 400 years that I'm looking at U.S. military and colonial um, policy towards civilians. Important
0: project. Thank you so much for your time today. That's been really fascinating and, and important work, and I wish you the best with your ongoing work.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, we think you will enjoy Jeremy Lent's new book, The Web of Meaning, integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. Jeremy sees the multiple crises we are facing as symptoms of an underlying worldview of disconnection that has passed its expiration date. The Web of Meaning provides an intellectually solid foundation for an alternative worldview of connectedness. Weaving together findings from modern science with insights from Buddhism, Taoism and indigenous knowledge, it offers a coherent, integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on a flourishing planet. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.